Our second reading from Scripture comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 14, beginning with the first verse. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host, and the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place, and then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He also said to one of them, to to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. Most holy God, we pray that you may send your Holy Spirit amongst us at this time. That in these words to come, all of us might hear a word of grace from you that can help us to be still and know that you are God. Amen. Well, when I graduated from university, I had the privilege of going over to England to teach at Eton College. Now, one thing about the English, and Eton in particular, is they didn't actually give me much instruction in advance about what I'd be doing when I got to Eton, other than the absolute barest minimum. And so I showed up, and when I showed up, uh, they told me that, again, my title was the Annenberg Fellow. I was named, which was named after Walter Annenberg, who was a publishing magnate, who was the ambassador to the court of St. James under Richard Nixon, and was a good friend of Eaton College, and had donated money so that some recent American college graduate could go over and be the American ambassador to Eaton. So that really was, was my job description, at least according to my, my colleague who I was living with. And I said, well, what does that include? And he's like, well, really, you just have to be like the resident American. Um, I said, okay, I think I could probably do that. He's like, yeah, you know, just be loud and brash, uh, (laughs) care too much about honesty, and make sure you're really arrogant. I'm like, okay. I have to say at that last one, I had to think to myself, I'm just like, arrogant, do people in other countries really see Americans as being that arrogant? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently they do. So this got me thinking, especially this week, I was... Considering, like, where does this come from? You know, part of it comes undoubtedly uh, from that great American hero and exemplar, Muhammad Ali. I mean, whenever you, I mean, when Muhammad Ali came on the scene in the 1960s, uh, one of the things that he did that was different from those before him is that he had no qualms getting up and telling everyone who would listen that he was the greatest. 
And every time that he went into a boxing match, he assured everyone else that he would win. And then on those times where he did win, he would then reiterate the fact that he was the greatest. Muhammad Ali made this boasting, this uh, overinflated confidence, this sense of arrogance uh, and sense of pride, a more normalized thing in American society, particularly among athletes. And again, today there are plenty of athletes and others who pick up the mantle of Muhammad Ali in that regard. And then in the 1980s, uh, the so-called go-go 80s, when I was growing up, this is where you had uh, a major rise in this culture of conspicuous consumption, where all of a sudden, if you did well, you wanted to show off that you did well. You wanted to have the nicest clothes. You wanted to have those fancy suspenders, you know, those Wall Street bankers used to have, riding those big stretch limos. You had lifestyles of the rich and famous It wasn't just good enough to be successful. You had to brag and boast about being successful. Be arrogant about your success. You see this in novels like American Psycho or Bonfire of the Vanities. Uh, And, of course, you you, you saw this in the 1980s uh, probably most clearly with a real estate mogul named Donald Trump who really took it upon himself to be the exemplar and the manifestation of this go-go 80s culture of uh, boasting and arrogance. And... As, as, as luck would have it, as fate would have it, it seems as though this, 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 this culture is pretty well ingrained in American society today. In fact, there's, a, there's this poem I ran across that sort of struck this that I thought was appropriate. It's a poem called Dilemma by David Budville. Dilemma. I want to be famous so I can be humble about being famous. <laughs> What good is my humility when I am stuck in this obscurity? (laughs) Good point. (laughs) And so today we run across our text uh, in the Gospel of Luke, which uh, is a curious one and an intriguing one. Here is Jesus who's at, yet again, a dinner scene, a dinner scene with a leader of the Pharisees. And earlier in the scene, at the beginning of the scene, he cures a man on the Sabbath who has dropsy. And then the scene that we have for today at this same dinner, uh, he sees all these Pharisees, uh, you know, elbowing each other out for a place at the table. They're trying to show off how great they are and boast about how wonderful they are. Oh, I'm I'm really the best Pharisee, so I'm going to sit at the top. And Jesus, observing all of this, tells them this story, uh, really more of a set of guiding guiding principles. Oh, when you go to a wedding banquet, it's a lot better to sit at the lower place and then be elevated higher than be sit at the higher place and have to be embarrassed by being cut down to size and then have to sit in the lowest place. That according to Jesus, the best thing we can do is to exemplify the virtue of humility, a good Christian value. Be humble. Because there are a number of advantages to being humble. One thing that's obvious to me about the virtue of humility is that it, it reflects the truth. One reason to be humble is it reflects the truth. When I was in high school, in my high school English class, one of the books we read uh, was Sophocles' Oedipus Cycle. This, of course, is where you get the Freudian concept of an Oedipal complex. But uh, Sophocles' great series of three plays, uh, in Sophocles' great series of three plays, the middle is called Oedipus at Colonus. 
And in that, I remember our headmaster, who was my English teacher, pointing out to me very specifically this line uh, of Theseus, who was king of Thebes. So here's Theseus, the most powerful person in his area, and someone is uh, being very deferential to him. And Theseus' response is, uh, he said, remember, I'm only a man. I have no more in the end to hope for than you do. Here was Theseus exemplifying this virtue of humility by just pointing out the obvious. Sure, I might be king now, but I'm going to die just like you. And where I go is the same place you're going to go. No reason for me to be overly puffed up. I think those people who uh, embody a virtue of humility, especially people who are successful, part of that is realizing that uh, so much of the success that you have is because of chance. I mean, that's just the reality of things. It's, it's axiomatic that people um, are talented and yet unsuccessful. Think of how many talented people there are out there who end up running into one roadblock and another and don't see the type of success they, that, that they want. There are others that are super successful, and yes, they might be talented and they might be hardworking, but anyone who's honest and truthful about it realizes that they can't get there without some breaks, without some really good good fortune. And those who actually can acknowledge that and see that as being true, that's a source of humility. But in the end, they're just naming what is a fact. In Boston, one of the legendary figures in the late 19th century in Boston was a a guy named Jack Gardner, Jack Lowell Gardner, who's known as being the last of the great China traders. So in Boston history, something I happen to like, in Boston history, in the early 19th century, the China trade was the source of great wealth in Boston. But by the Civil War, that had really petered out. Uh, But there was one sort of figure at that latter period who towered above the rest, and this was this guy, Jack Gardner, who was able to make a massive fortune in the China trade when few others could. It was said of Jack Gardner that if he was dropped off at the end of Long Wharf, uh, penniless, by the time he made his way to the old state house, he would be a millionaire because he was so good at business. And yet, when Jack Gardner was asked about this, was asked about business acumen, Gardner's response, I think, is, is, is revealing. Gardner said, well, the difference between being a business success and not is being right three out of five times versus being right two out of five times. Anyone who's in business and taking risks is going to fail. The key for him is to succeed slightly more often than you fail. Here's Jack Gardner, who has every reason to be boastful about his success, and in fact, just names the truth as he saw it. In 1999, there was a pair of psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, who came out with this paper um, that has been oft-cited and quoted since then because of this Dunning-Kruger effect that they labeled. And that is the fact that those who actually have the least amount of knowledge or expertise tend to be the most overconfident. (laughs) And that they actually drew a graph to sort of chart this out according to their research. That, in fact, the more information that you have about a particular subject, the less confident you become because you realize how much uncertainty is actually in play. And so the goal for those who actually observe the truth and understand the truth is to actually be quite humble about the way things are and what you might know. Because the reality is that even the most knowledgeable people realize there's an awful lot that they don't know. But in addition to naming the truth, you know, an advantage of being humble is that it's one of these things that just makes you a lot more likable. 
I mean, I can imagine Jesus viewing this scene of these Pharisees trying to elbow people away to get the better seat at the table. And Jesus is like, I bet people don't like that guy right there. (laughs) The very earliest book on rhetoric that we have in the Western tradition is Aristotle's On Rhetoric. And in Aristotle's On Rhetoric, he says that there are three different things that convince people of an argument. The first is the ethos, the character of the speaker. The second is logos, the reason, the the arguments that you make. And the final is pathos, the emotions that are elicited in the midst of this argument. And Aristotle recommends that, you know, when you're trying to establish your character, your ethos at the beginning of a speech, he says, the best way to do this, according to Aristotle, this is almost 2,500 years ago, he's like, the best way to do this is to humble yourself. Nothing makes you more relatable and more likable as a public speaker than by beginning in a a self-deprecating way. And that gives you a connection immediately to your audience and they feel like they can relate to you. That's his advice. People who who are humble tend to be a lot more likable. Think of any examples in your own mind. But not only are people more likable when they're humble, they also, it also lends a certain degree of moral authority. I think of Pope Francis. Here, Pope Francis steps into the papacy at a time when the Roman Catholic Church is reeling from the clergy abuse scandal, reeling from corruption scandals in the Vatican Bank in Rome, uh, and a lack of trust in the institution like never before. And what is Pope Francis' first thing he does? He humbles himself. He gets rid of all of the fancy clothes that Benedict loved so much, and whenever he goes around, he just wears a simple white cassock of the Pope, even when he celebrates Mass. You see the... You see Francis coming in and taking a very modest vehicle to drive around Rome in so that he can show that, again, he has no interest in trying to inflate himself or his position. Very publicly, he intentionally on Monday, Thursday, goes out and invites in people who are prisoners, those who are women, those who are of different, Christian, different religious traditions so that he can wash their feet as a sign of humility and the model of Jesus. Uh, He also goes out of his way, and again, this occasionally gets reported in the Italian press, goes out of his way to make sure that he responds to correspondence from people who send him correspondence from all over the world who are just average parishioners in the pews. So every once in a while, someone will actually get a personalized letter from the Pope uh, who wrote to him, because that matters to him. These things help give the Pope moral authority and make Pope Francis a lot more likable. Think of other great characters in the 20th century, whether it be Gandhi, who was known for his simplicity, um, I mean, try to think of some others who are great figures of, uh, or the Dalai Lama, that was another one I was trying to think of. The Dalai Lama, if you've ever met the Dalai Lama, he's incredibly humble and self-effacing, um, very simplistic, and when he gets up to speak, everybody listens. That's the other thing about humility that I think is, is important for most of us. I mean, I, I, I look at it all of you, and I, I don't think of you as being a particularly arrogant crowd <laughs> or overly prideful. Uh, That's not something that I would say is characteristic of all of you here at First Congregational. But at the same time, I think we all suffer from, at times, uh, an overinflated ego. And what I mean by this is uh, there are certain things that give yourself identity. Certain things that you use to identify yourself, to give yourself self-confidence. And those things sometimes can become very important and you can become deeply proud of them. And the prouder you become and the more important that these certain things are, uh, the more that they can stress you out when you don't quite reach that goal. So, for instance, for parents, I would imagine most parents would like to consider themselves to be great parents. 
and take that very closely and very seriously. But sometimes people put so much weight in that, put so much weight in that that they put all too much pressure on their, on, on their kids in order to succeed, just to show off that they're good parents. Or if something's not going right with their kids, they might blame themselves for it. Um, I mean, again, uh, I'm sure you can think of examples of some of your peers that fall into that. Another way of approaching it might be saying, you know what, I try and be a good parent, but I know I mess up. I know I'm flawed. I know that other parents are probably better parents than I am. And you know what, that's okay. Maybe I should just try and be the best parent that I can be. Or same thing in your workplace. I mean, you try and be the best person you can in your workplace, for sure. You want to be a superstar in your workplace, for sure. You build up your own ego in your workplace, for sure. But every time you do that, that adds extra stress to you. And it might actually make you worse at your job than not. I mean, I, I remember, particularly when I worked at a church in Iowa, I was just determined that I was going to drag that church into, into, into phenomenal greatness. I was going to do it myself, throw it all on my shoulders. I put everything on my ego and, and, and pushed myself as hard as I could and actually ended up doing more damage to myself and the church, I think, in the long run by doing that. The reality is, is that there are, in Houston, broader, a lot better preachers than I am. That's fine. Uh, as long as I can preach something that's authentic to me. There are other people out there that are better pastoral caregivers than I am. That's 100% true. There's certainly people out there that are much better church administrators than I am. <laughs> and more organized than I am. But you know what? Maybe that's okay. Maybe I can still be confident in the gifts that God's given me and say, you know, I'm going to mess up. But that's all right. I'm just a human. I'm just a minister. Nothing special. But even with that, even when we are humble, or try to be, even when we try not to have an over, overinflated sense of self, um, even when we try and be good disciples of Jesus, there are inevitably those times where life humbles us. <laughs> where no matter what happens, things come along uh, that knock us down quite a few pegs. Where maybe it's... Uh, we thought we had some great friends, um, and your friends were there, and then all of a sudden you find out that certain people that were your friends are not as close friends as you thought they were. And that can be a deeply humbling experience, especially when you need them, and they're not there, uh, or they're saying things behind your back. Uh, it can be a deeply humbling experience when you're doing your best at your job, and all of a sudden the rug comes out from underneath you, and you're left having to swallow your own pride and piece things back together again. Reminds me of that famous Rudyard Kipling poem, If. Uh, if you can make one heap of all your winnings and lose it in one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. That's a nice thing to maybe aspire for, but it's not so easy when you actually lose all your winnings. Uh, or also in a personal relationship. Personal relationships fall apart deep, intimate relationships that you care about and you invest in and they tear your heart and you feel like your heart is being dissected alive as it's falling apart. Uh, those things can be deeply humbling. And hopefully we can learn from those experiences. Uh, one of the lines that comes to me that's uh, one of my favorite lines in all of scripture is a line of Jesus where he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light.
So I hope for all of you, if you are feeling at a time particularly humbled as we enter this new year, that you can turn to Jesus and take his yoke upon you. Let us all try and strive in this year ahead to be a little bit more humble, to be a little more lowly in heart, try and feel what that light yoke might be like. I can't think of a better time to start this than this weekend. After all, it is Labor Day. <laughs> so as we seek rest from our family, as we seek rest uh, from work, as we seek rest, rest and recreation with others, let us also seek rest with Jesus and get rest for our souls.